Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Tonight, we're very pleased to welcome Colorado author Travis Hugh Cully to the store. Cully is the author of The Immortal Class, Bike Messengers, and The Cult of Human Power. He's also the recipient of the Oxbow Fellowship in 2006. And tonight, we're pleased to welcome him to discuss and sign his new book, A Comedy and a Tragedy, a memoir of learning how to read and write. Please join me in welcoming Travis Hugh Cully. Thank you, Michael. I love your bookstore. Recognize everyone for being here at this time in this place. This is a fantastic time and a fantastic place. Um, I, I want to um, start with just a quick reading from the book. And I, today I don't have much of an outline. So uh, hopefully, and I hope this is happy news, it'll um, offer us an opportunity just to talk and handle questions. So um, with this first section that I hope to read, um, I'll give us a fair time to respond to it and see how that goes. I'm going to handle this like a creative workshop, a writing workshop. Chapter 4. I have not read this one publicly yet. Supervision. Joe called it the learning disability test, sounding each word out with a cartoon voice. I had to take it more seriously. The thing was, as Mom explained, this would be a diagnostic test. The word diagnostic made my ears tingle. She said there was no way to study. I could not pass or fail. I could only try to make a good impression. It seemed like a tricky situation. I began to envision myself looking at myself, hoping to see in a reflection what everyone thought was so dumb about me. I had round eyes and a polite demeanor. Maybe I smiled too much. I thought about how I answered questions, how I spoke, if I stuttered or hesitated while speaking. I didn't. In class... I began listening a little more closely when kids spoke up. When the room began chanting, I tried to imagine what I was hearing. If I ever hoped to be a fourth grader, I would have to convince someone that I understood this material. So, for Miss Helene, I began chanting. First, I just made sounds. Sometimes I could correctly guess the first letter or two of a word, but then I would leave the rest to gibberish. I had no idea how letters combined into words. I imagined that it would all make sense eventually. What was the term? Second nature. When the day was over, Mom asked if I had any homework. I did it in class already, I said. The next day, I said I had none had been assigned. I was only avoiding homework. I was, well, I was not only avoiding homework, I was avoiding the embarrassment that would follow whenever the subject of school came up. I stuck to my answers. Both were new to me, and both were lies. Then, while keeping an eye on the other kids, I began to suspect that I could cheat my way through class. Who would know the difference? I began to ask to look at other kids' homework before the morning bell. The first few looked down and shook their heads. When I came upon my next-door neighbor... Lee Michael, he agreed to help. He opened his folder and knelt down. There 
one place in front of me, I saw a clean sheet of paper with twenty vocabulary words written neatly in two columns. I squinted over his shoulder, and in my own folder I copied what I saw. When Miss Helene asked for our homework, I passed mine up. The next day, we did the whole routine again. I asked my neighbor if we could meet before school and until I got caught up, and to my surprise, he said yes. He even offered to come over to the house after school and help me complete the homework there. Here I said no thanks. My parents didn't like visitors, but more importantly, I realized that if Lee Michael were to help me do my assignments, it would defeat the purpose of my not doing them. One night, I stole away to my room and set the workbook at the end of my bed. I was going to see if I was as smart as other kids were. I gathered all of my mental powers and looked at the vocabulary pages. I found the daily exercises, 20 sentences, each sentence with a blank line in the middle and a corresponding list of words on the next page. I concentrated, but with each word, the sentence meant something different. Words were words. Anyone can fit into another position. It all seemed pointless. I tried to imagine the words turning those words, these words turning those words into sentences, but it didn't help. I only found broken pieces of sentences, with only occasional lines converging. Frustrated, I turned back to the back of the book and found the chapter summaries. All the answers, 1 through 20, were listed upside down at the back of the book. I spun the workbook around and copied what I saw. The next morning, I turned in my homework without having to bother Lee Michael. He looked down, confused, as I proudly turned my assignment in. Then, on the night before a test, I developed another method. Referring to answers, the answers themselves in the back of the book, I made a tiny cheat sheet. I grabbed a pair of scissors and cut the words away from my cheat sheet until I had a two-inch square. I folded that square up into a tiny booklet and set it in the pocket of my backpack. In class, at the third hour, I reached into my backpack for my exercises and all of the movement in the room, amid all of the movement in the room, safely withdrew my cheat sheet. By the time the vocabulary test was handed out, I had the answers waiting beneath the heel of my left hand. I filled in the answers to the test, taking little pauses, shaking my hand, to appear that I was thinking. The next week, I earned my first official A. That wasn't so hard, Miss Helene said with a smile in her eyes. Thank you. I, I enjoy reading this section because, for one, some of the book can be a little sour, a little dour. It can be a little hard to read. And, and I, I want to um, have the opportunity with an audience to read the uplifting sections, too, and to, and to show you the humor and to share some of the fun parts of the, of the journey, which are cumbersome, complicated. There's n- not every problem is a bad thing, I, as you will learn um, overcoming a problem can sometimes lead to great inventions. So um, I, I, I open up this section here because it, it um, shows us the uplifting path of how do we do this. Maybe um, I can open this up for a, a, a conversation of a sort. I, I think it may be interesting just even to talk about how it is that I lived up to Miss Helene's expectations. She was so proud of me for having gotten an A on the quiz. But 
what she couldn't measure behind my effort was that I had to take every machination necessary in order to cheat on the test. I successfully cheated on the test. And that's what I take pride in. <laughs> that's what I shared with Miss Aline. Whew, I made it past your radar. So I want to just open that up as, a, as what does literacy mean for you in, in terms of that kind of relationship? I, I kind of think cheating is thinking. Yeah, cheating is hiding your process. And really, that's what um, intelligent people have that other folks don't, or let's say people who are really equipped with uh, lots of voices in their heads, of well-read people, they are able to hide their process. They can cite Shakespeare, cite Byron, without revealing to you that they've read them. And so cheating and thinking are not, at Miss Helene's point of view, any different. And I, I do open up the question whether or not it is significantly different to, um, to, to, to answer the test the right way or to answer the test the wrong way. Because from my own standpoint, I learned by, of course, going the wrong way and, and still recovering some of the invention involved in learning and saying, aha, this is how they got an A. That, to me, was a big enlightening part of my process, and I think it's also what helped me scoot forward or jump forward in stages. Um, my book uh, talks a lot about um, the apparatus of the theater and some of the elements of the theater as entering into what becomes persuasive. There is an element of rhetoric involved in even identification. Is this A, A, A is A, A is A? If they don't reflect each other, then it's not identification. And so, in a sense, I learned the art of living up to the expectations as they were described to me. When Miss Helene says, this is a simple test, I'm going to give you plenty of time to prepare, and I live up to her expectations, I'm acting, but successfully. And later in my life, um, in, in the school system, I, I, should put, I should map this out in uh, grades, I suppose. In third grade, I start to learn that there's a trick around this, what, how, what, how the smart kids get ahead. I can find a way to seem like one of the smart kids. By the eighth grade, well, by seventh grade, I get into a, a gifted art school in which um, I start to work with the apparatus of the theater. With, uh, I'm, I'm in a drama program where um, I then am on stage and I'm performing. And at each of these levels, the book um, unfolds how it is that I trick myself or trick my supervisors into thinking that I'm exceptional in this position. Um, this is maybe something that's uh, fairly commonly understood about illiteracy. The thing that makes illiteracy so hard to root out is because no one wants to believe they're illiterate. No one wants to admit they're illiterate. And if someone really can't read or write, they don't bring it up. Other people don't ask. And so it's easy to play along. And I think that's really the current of the book, is to talk about how much adult and adolescent literacy um, goes unnoticed because of this social quality of playing along. Um, I guess after this section in my book, um, I get um, a, a, the results from the test. And the results of the test um, should say, okay, well, here's the problem. These are the identifiable things that we can you know, uh, address in Travis's education, and thereby maybe we can get him to, to speed up to the other 
kids in his class, once they identify that I'm, I'm not following along, I, I take this learning disability test. And um, the test uh, is marked off in, in sections. I'm supposed to take this, that, this, that, this, that, um, a sight and hearing test, um, a, a, a verbal recognition test. There's these different basic tests. Um, the one that is not marked is language the language test that says, how do I actually relate to language? Um, and it's a real trick to me that here, Miss Helene, who was a very impactful teacher, given that it was only third grade, she had the opportunity to, to correct where I as a student was going wrong. But she did not mark language learning and literacy. She did not mark that box. And part of the reason why, this is also something I hope to open up in discourse and conversation is that in the context of this public school, I'm in South Florida, Miami, where only half the population speaks English. The other half speaks Spanish. And so when she gets to language learning, in her context, that means ESOL. Okay, that one doesn't need to be checked. So I eventually scoot through all of these, you know, um, points in which I'm supposed to be tested for how well I, I read and write, but I scoot through because there are these cultural considerations that change how it is that that box gets marked so that I, as a student, miss the test I shouldn't have taken, I should have taken, and I move into the fourth grade without anyone knowing what the third grade obstacle was. And in the fifth grade and in the sixth grade, well, there, in the sixth grade, I meet a, a music teacher. And um, a music teacher sees me having kind of just being a clown in class. Um, and she pulls me aside after class and she um, recommends that I go to a gifted program. Um, I'll, I'll read to you in a second how that gifted school itself, what it was like, and how, in fact, this gifted program, however revolutionary it may seem in terms of the pedagogical approach, we, we're going to play with art and theater, see if this can help kids learn. Um, for me, I was persuaded because I was on, I was learning the acting. I was not learning the writing. And so I continued to carry that momentum as far as possible. And that explains my success. That explains how it is I got through every year of school without reading and writing. But I should go back. Yeah. Well, I was lucky um, in a theater setting, and it took time for me to adjust to this theater setting, because theater is a literary art. Everything that happens on stage, you know, in practical sense, should be written down somewhere, maybe, you know. There's improvisation, however. There's circusry. There's just entertainment. And I was hoping I could get lost in the briars of all those other sub-forms of the art, so that I could be an entertainer, and I could be a clown, and I could be a circus performer, um, and never really be called to the line of Hamlet. I never thought I could get to that spot. Um, when I am working with um, Mr. Wright, after the section that I will eventually re read here, um, he has this great notion. It's well-timed. He says he wants to do a production of Oklahoma, and he thought I'd make a good lead. Well, 
it happened uh, to coincide with a, a, a summer camp trip that my family would take every summer. Well, every other summer. And um, I'm kind of skipping ahead here. But I didn't want to go to this camp program. And so I said that I'd do the musical, even though I didn't have the ability to play the lead. And so I just said yes, all the way to the point of the first day of class, in which I'm in rehearsal, and he hands me the script, and I say, I can't read, Mr. Wright. And he says, okay, back steps quite considerably, and he forms um, a part in the play that's uh, a new character. He calls me Cowboy Jim, and... (laughs) Cowboy Jim can still be in the play, can be in every scene, can operate in the blocking of the other scenes that take place, but doesn't have to actually say a word of the script. And so I sing along, and I dance along, and I prattle and prance along, but I'm actually just avoiding that relationship with, okay, what word is this? Um, so there's many stages in which I'm, I'm skirting that uh, responsibility to say, here, now, read this. Um, and it's also culturally interesting that no one's asking me, you know, um, well, where's your writing? You know, no one's concerned ab- about the fact that I can't read or write. And I don't get to really say this here in a book that's as slim as this one is. For good purpose, it is slim. But it, I hope, provokes the question of what kind of an illiterate culture we're in, how it is that culture doesn't look more carefully as to whether or not these skills are actually received by kids. You know, um, how much permissiveness do we have in culture to be illiterate? Um, Yes? I'm curious as to uh, how many siblings you have. I I have one older brother. And uh, how aware your parents had no awareness that you... Well, my brother, um, I was famously illiterate. So if, if, if anyone came to me with the idea of the project of reading something, I would, I would bar that opportunity. My parents did not come to me with books to read. I would just poo-poo it. I, I would have tantrums. I was negative against it. I just didn't want to sit there. And um, the more I was displeased by it, the less my parents provoked that. My brother, however, it is an interesting case. He was very literate. He was more literate than more literate than my parents both combined. Even though my parents had master's degrees, my brother was the one who was actually reading novels, like all the time. Stephen King, um and how much older was your brother? Two years. And so he probably was clearly aware of he, Yes, and he and he actually challenged me at a few points to read books. And said, "You'll like this. You'll you'll actually like the characters in here." Yeah, he tried, and I have a scene here which I guess I could find and read to you, in which I say, uh, you know, I grab another book off the shelf and and I compare the pages and I just show him, you know, this is the same thing. All of this is just the same thing, because from my standpoint, it was the same thing. And so Joe and I had a deep discord in our relationship, and part of it begins with the fact that I was resistant to reading and writing. The most interesting thing that I, I, I got from his interest in my becoming literate was that there was a sense of adventure in, in literacy, in reading and writing. However, that adventure with my brother did not turn into a literary program because my, there was a, a level of competition in, in, that, in, that family, in my family with my brother. And so I was, in some sense, claiming my own individuality while he was saying, okay, I'm going to take the other course. And literacy for him was a weapon. It, 
it was always very hurtful. It was always a form of torture. Um, and this is not, this is in the book, but it's not said in these words exactly. My brother would tie me up. He would, he would try and suffocate me. He, 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 um, he, he would be able to say things to my parents that I hadn't done, get me in trouble for things I hadn't had any idea about, and um, I would not have any way of, of you know, um, speaking to my own truth because he would he would be able he was he was such a manipulator at a certain point that um, in books it was espionage that he was driven to. It was about how you can manipulate information, not about the philosophical component, not about the fraternity involved in working with a document. All those deep questions, all those ontological realms of language remained hidden culturally. And a lot of that was because of the contention I had with my brother. Wow. What does he do today? Um, he, is, uh, he manufactures um, the furniture for um, the stores that you see at, at shopping malls. So he, he manufactures merchandising equipment for Walmart and Victoria's Secret and Foot Locker and um, chains like that. He's the absolute antithesis of me in, in as much as I'm an artist and, I, uh, and, I'm, and I'm a writer and I've got only my word to work with. Um, he lives in Hollywood. He's got four boys. Um, and he's, he's now got custody of all four boys himself, if that says. Well, are you, were you able to reconcile your differences as adults? No. We haven't spoken since 2008. I love my brother very much. He's really very interesting and smart, but um, but it's complicated. Have you sent him a copy of your book? No. I don't know his address. I don't know his phone number. I, I, I know his email. Yeah. Was it a conscious decision not to read? Partly. This helps me open up some of the sad side of the story. <laughs> um, yes, partly there was an, a, a, a characteristic in my personality that was a, a resistant and a rebel early on. And I felt like I wanted to um, understand the program after, you know, um, after it was made clear to me. I was resistant early. Maybe I didn't have the aptitude because I didn't like it. At the age of six, at the age of seven, I walked away from reading. And it wasn't because of any particular trauma. When, after the fourth, third grade, I go to summer camp for the first time, um, uh, something terrible happens to me. Um, the camp is a very odd place, and it's very different from where I grew up in the city of Miami. This is in, this is in Ocala National Forest, um, a, a small camp where boys and girls are segregated into different cabins, and they have the um, opportunity to write their names on the walls. It's 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 not said that you that you're allowed to, but it's also not said that you're not allowed to. So every child goes there, sleeps in their bunk bed, and writes their name on the wall, and feels this tinge of original sin. They just committed graffiti, you know, <laughs> and and it's a very odd biblical and religious place because it works on these rituals in a, in, a, in a heavy sort of way, in a very laden way. My father went to the same camp. His brother went to the same camp. The rituals and traditions that were in place when they were there were identical to when I came there in 1982. Um, on the last night of camp, 
the story here will tell you in graphic detail. I was met by um, two people. One was the guitarist of the church, and um, he was given, I suppose, instructions um, to give me a, a cup of alcohol, a glass of wine that was mixed with ginger ale so that I didn't know what it was. And um, one thing leads to another, and I fall, and I'm, I'm injured on a swing because I'm drunk. And he takes me to the clinic. He said he calls it a clinic, but he takes me to the office of the camp. And um, at that point, I know when I look at the office door that that door does not say clinic. I'm admitted. No, not a word is mentioned between the two men. I'm given another uh, another form of uh, drug. I think it was a chloroform or an ether because he 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 gave it. He put it on a. He put a glove on. He put a a gauze pad in his left hand. He had a a one ounce bottle that he opened very carefully. It was childproof, and he had he did it this way. He asked me where I was injured. I told him where it was, and I fell right through my skin after feeling him place his plastic thumb on my face. And I recall all of this in detail. It took me years, decades, really, to get all these memories back. But that's another subject. So. When I wake, yeah, um, if if I had two minutes to broaden this subject a little bit, um, here's a few of the basic parameters of what going to camp means. Everyone has to learn to swim there. No one is free to not learn to swim. Even if you know how to swim, or if you don't like the water, you're going to learn to swim. Even if you already know how to swim. You're going to learn to swim even if you don't like the water. Every child is required to lay in the arms of one of the tutors and be held by strangers and be instructed to wade and kick your heels um, in the arms of someone you do not know. And and um, so that affected every person, every child, every set of ankles who was in that camp. That level of molestation was just going on. This was a camp that in which that ritual about about the swimming pool was set in place twenty years before the chapel was built. They built the swimming pool, and the industry here was to teach kids how to swim. Oh yeah, come to camp. You get away from your children for a week. And your children will learn to swim. And every child is molested on that level, including my brother, my, my father, my uncle. Um, at the last night of camp, there's a, there's a, a um, you know, pointers, eight different things that you bring to camp. The last thing on that, on that list was shaving cream. You know, I'm eight years old. Dad, why do I need shaving cream? He says, you'll find out when you get there. I say, okay, Dad, do I need a razor? Maybe I should read something to you. I woke to find the man with the mustache telling Angela to go inside. She ran up to the light. I had dirt in my mouth. I brushed pebbles away from my face. The man with the mustache picked me up in his arms as though I were a guitar and carried me down the hill toward the lake. I kicked out of his arms, refusing to be carried. I wanted to walk on my own. I was a big boy, I said. The man told me I could walk beside him if we held hands. Feeling dizzy, I let him lead me alongside the pool, down behind a big tree 
near the lake. We walked along the bank and then up the other side of the pool, avoiding the light from the mess hall. He walked me to the door of a small white building above the chapel. I was confused. The man had said he was taking me to the clinic, but the the, uh, the door read office. That much I could read. Now we know where we are. The man with the mustache knocked on the door. An older man expecting us opened it and whisked me inside. No words were said. Was this the same preacher from the sermon? I couldn't tell. His face was not red anymore, but his eyes were the same glassy blue. The man with the mustache left. The door was closed. The other man went over to the letter-writing desk and began to ask me what happened. I'd fallen. Okay. I'm just going to beat through some of these transitions because this is a tough section. Um, swinging too high, I repeated my words, knowing what I'd done. He said he'd give me something for the pain. He put on a latex glove, just one on the left hand. He had a small clear jar and a gauze pad that he drew from the drawer of his desk. He opened the container and poured some of the liquid into the cotton. Gently, he came closer and asked me to show him where it hurt. I lifted my shirt over my left side, and then I disappeared, falling right through my skin, feeling the pastor's plastic thumb against my cheek. One morning had been cut from the night. I woke spinning, feeling the sound, feeling held by the sound of crickets. I was in the anxious embrace of a man, someone, he was bumping me. I had no idea how I had gotten here or where I was. I couldn't feel anything but for a sort of glowing in me and all around me. I could see through my skin. I was aware of my back and legs, my hands and face. I was aware that someone was bumping me. And the table I was lying on, I had been dreaming of being in heaven, knowing what heaven was except for the crickets. I remember thinking there would be no crickets in heaven. God would not bother to populate the clouds with them. I must be on earth. I was in a small room on a white metal table beside a piano that was covered with a thin quilt. There were golden crosses on the walls. He didn't think we were in heaven, did he? I felt like I was having an argument with myself, like wrestling with myself. I thought if I could just explain, then I would wake up or he would wake up or wake himself up. And I placed my arm on the tabletop, my arms on the tabletops, and I turned to explain about the crickets. The man stepped back. This is a hard section for me to read. I didn't anticipate doing it. Um, he collected the tails of his shirt and stuffed them into his pants, adjusting his belt buckle. He was wearing a white shirt and black pants. I sat up and found my shorts were around my ankles. I was dizzy. I was sick. You're okay. You're okay, see? No bruises or scrapes. I had no way of understanding what he meant. Sitting up on the table, I drew my swim shorts up to my hips. I looked at the old man who had been bumping me. He was old. His cheeks were flushed. Um, that repetition is not there. I, I'd made that mistake here. Um, he had starched white hair. Reading with my, Reaching with my toes, I found the floor, but it was moving, with both feet on the ground, I could ask, Do I have to be here? You don't have to stay. He sat back down in the corner, but you can stay if you want to. I turned my eyes away from the old man. I walked through the front door, stepping uneasily down 
to earth again. He came to the door again and closed it gently, saying only, Go back to your cabin now. You'll forget everything in the morning. Um, so I recognize, I go back to the bed, the, ca- the cabin, a voice comes to me, tells me that I, I need to remember this, if, um, that if something happens to me, I need to remember this. Um, I pull myself up and I fall into my sheets. I laid my head on the pillow trying to stop spinning, because I'm still feeling this drug they given me. To help myself sleep, I curled up and listened to the sound of the other boys breathing, because I'm in a cabin of 80, 40 children on either side of a divider. So I could hear through two corridors a total of 80 children, 70 to 80 children, all breathing at night. As dawn approached, I found the letters of the alphabet moving beyond my reach. This is again the children had written in the cabin. And so I wake up to see these, what they'd written, moving around. Uh, day was here. There was my body. I saw it. I kept floating over, walking past it, unsure if this was the body to which I'd been assigned. The names were moving like liquid around the beams and panels of the cabin. The scratches of so many pens and pocket knives cast tiny, multicolored shadows into the grain. Colors converged. It wasn't light. Blue ink red green. Red ink red black. Black markers shone orange and yellow. I heard laughter, where children stood to write their names. I saw their markers in hand, tops careening to the floor. I want to share this with you, and I'll explain it in a moment. These are the journals that I write between the age of 16 and 19. And this is a, uh, a way of understanding how it is that I encoded this horrible memory, which underneath which I did not develop my literacy. So after this experience, waking up in this cabin, I forget everything, just like the pastor had told me. And so I go to school in the fourth grade, having kind of like been formatted, reformatted. My whole drive had been totally reformatted, and I was not with the program. I seemed so, but I was I was just playing along. When Eight years later, in high school, I, I need to run away from home because of other difficult family dynamics. I do leave home by writing in a journal. I write about the struggles of the family, and I, I, I try to make a space for myself, try and define my independence in a book in which I keep from my family and keep hidden from them. This journal is how I um, eventually start writing in high school, and it is in this composition that I'm able to record this memory. Um, The breathing had stopped. I sat up and leaned over the rail. I was alone in the cabin. All the other boys had packed their bags and left them on their naked mattresses. I heard laughter. My stomach ached. I had to find the bathroom. Uneasily, I climbed down the bunk bed. I was still dizzy. In a stupor, I walked down the hall. Behind me, tendrils of sunlight were moving. Names followed me around corners. I pulled down my swim, sh- swim trunks, which I was still wearing. There I felt suddenly displaced, as though I had never been in this place before. 
I didn't recognize the little red stall that I was seated in. The toilet and the door were so close together that there was no room to place my knees. I tried to close the door, which wasn't really a door, but a board, a piece of siding, hung from a hinge and painted red. As it wafted open with the breeze, I heard the laughter again. The boys and girls were out on the baseball diamond, playing in shaving cream. That night, when I returned to the cabin, I'd, I was intoxicated with this substance and confused, and my body's in pain. When all of the other children were woken up, that was the time for the shaving cream. So everyone gets their shaving cream bottle, goes out to the the ballpark, where they smother each other with shaving cream. The men stand around happily and watch. And it's kind of an orgy. And children just playing in, in, in this white soap. And the kids get just a screaming kick out of it because it's a co-ed situation. And they've, for the last week, been nursing each grooming each of this group to meet this group, essentially in this group to meet this group. This camp's overarching purpose is to sexualize you in your adolescence. And that's really what I understand years later. Uh, Because this sexualization, in the form of a shaving cream can, it's as though you're going from 8 to 18 like that. It's like you're going from um, understanding that this is a sexual... um, Ability to touch this, that this is a lubricant, and then and then you're normalized afterward to understanding the feeling of a man's chin. So children who go through this ritual have to reflect upon the fact that if they've been molested by a man with a chin, that they always have to use this sort of shaving cream to work with the memory. So the architectonics of this camp is one of constantly rinsing your memory free of the transformation between childhood and adolescence. You leave there a grown-up. You leave there knowing what boys and girls do. There's a a hay bale ride that happens for the older kids, and I go back there years later and I discover this hay bale ride, and there's no hay in the hay bale in the truck. It's old mattresses. And so the pedagogy of this place, however haphazardly and full of so much neglect, is there to teach a component of of human culture that is not the church's responsibility, which is to say it's how we work with our gender and our sex. And all of these rituals are ways of indoctrinating us in terms of who we're supposed to be in those forms, including me. Now, when I wake up and I go to the bathroom and I hear these other kids running past um, I run past the windows. Um, <sighs> lines of colored light pierced me. Names seemed to change, trading letters back and forth beside me, behind me. I climbed back into the bunk, pulled my sheets over my head, and I thought, I should just try to wake up again. It'll stop. I assured myself. Above me, everywhere, the seconds whirled back and forth, Hours spun in place. Decades found themselves knotted to the wood grain. Robert, 1958. Steve was here, 72. Herb was here. Gerald, 67. Mark, 61. Nick slept here, 75. Years flashed. 
Gleaming children ran past the windows in swimsuits, their bodies covered in white soap. The lake awaited them. I lay back, feeling as though I'd been fighting all night. So the last thing about the shaving cream is it is soap. And after the children have this ambiguous experience, they rinse off in the in the lake and in the and in the swimming pool. And that's how they're received by their parents after coming back to town in a school bus, shining, bristling, because they've just gotten smothered in shaving cream that had just been rinsed off. So it's it's used as soap so as to return the children to their parents gleaming. And I was um I was the one kid in that bus who did not uh, come out the same way. Um, So this experience was so complicated for me that any effort beyond this point to learn to read was obstructed. The who I was question had become more complicated. So I was not in a position to um, continue in the track of learning with other people. I started to hear voices after this summer. And those voices I didn't know how to explain to anyone. Um, I eventually used those voices to teach me. I eventually found a way to um, take to claim um, the audio hallucinations that I was experiencing in my youth and mine them. If there were other voices, then there were other minds. If there were other minds, then they could teach me something. What happened to camp? My grandfather picked me up three years later when we returned there, and he gave me a warning about what happens in situations like this. My grandfather's a veteran from the Second World War, and and nothing can scare him or shake him. And he gave me some truthful words three years after the event and said, if anyone touches you wrong or if anything happens, you need to tell me. And I told him in the car, I said, I fell off the swing. But it was three years before. But yet there seemed to be some understanding that maybe that camp was a problem, and yet you were sent there. Yeah. Yeah. And I described uh, fairly well why um, my, 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 it was a grooming situation, I suppose, and that my 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 father and his brother... My grandmother, um, she was she had a terrible reputation in the town of Daytona Beach, Florida, and um, Charlotte was her name, and she was famous in the wrong way. Hmm. To be singled out as big person in Daytona. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my father and his brother had you know this mark on them initially, and the church would give to Charlotte scholarships so that her two kids could go to camp so that Charlotte given all the other things she has she's um, a single mother with two children and she's very popular in the bars now what are you going to do with these kids you you're, there's a lot of neglect going on and, and, and it's just circumstantial and um, so the church says we'll take them from you for two weeks no problem and um, so I'm really quite worried that um, one of them was was affected the way I was 
I'm certain that they're both affected the way my brother was. And, and maybe this is something that sits underneath my relationship with my brother is that I can accept and understand what happened to me now, even though it was difficult. It's going to be a, another brave move for him to understand what happened to him. They sold the, the camp three years ago. And do you use the name of the camp in your book? No, I don't. And yet, I do believe there is a relationship between uh, my effort to write about my experience and their sale of the property. How many, you know, how many years did it operate? Um, they bought the farm. Uh, it was a dairy, I believe, um, in 1956. Uh, one calendar week in 1982, one ta- calendar week in 1984, again in 1985, and then the last week was 1987. And there are photographs from that time in which I've gone through this total transformation. I'm then this bright, cheery, outgoing kid with a lot of internal and emotional strife going on. And I'm fleeing from my emotions because I'm trying to gain attention and popularity and make every reward that I can from an audience um, because if people, you know, think you're, um, if, if people think the wrong thing about you and they're sure, they'll never question your literacy. It's, it's kind of like you hide it. Um, so people think you have a lot going for you, then, you know, it just doesn't come up. You know, you can, um, you're good in basketball, well, that just means we're going to wait until we ask the other question of whether or not you can read. You know, it's so, it's a, I don't want to unpack it that way, but. Um, are your parents still living? Yes, both are. They live about three miles from each other. They don't talk. Um, I want to share just a few words from the book, and um, maybe this will lead to other thoughts. And I don't want to keep you all night, um, and I want to give everyone an opportunity to speak to me directly and personally, also. So if if we transition to a signing moment. I want to invite everyone to buy a book, um, but also to to have a a word with me directly if you'd like before tonight's over. Okay. Um, Here's a section I call survival stories. Um, Stories like mine can be hard to tell. They are often told more easily in a whisper than in a full voice, and the reason is plain. A survival story is nothing to celebrate. The right words are hard to find. Even if survivors do succeed in finding them, the most concerned reader will dread reading what they write down. This is why survival stories, truly lived, appear awkward and unfitting in their adaptations as comedies or tragedies. They tend to have no easy place among the amber and blue hues of the theater. Too often, the telling gets in the way. The issues are too delicate. The moral, which is cautionary, becomes too easily cluttered by the conventions of the art. The consequences of many any misunderstanding can be far-reaching. There is no room for spectacle, no room for easy resolutions. A hero in a survival story doesn't feel like a hero, doesn't know he is a hero, and the villain can't be taken seriously in costume. Every day, it seems, I read another story about victims of the church coming forward. We hear the awful truth about children who have been harmed. Some children are, and when they are, it can be a shameful thing to place a name on. Terms can be abused. They can serve as a tool of religion, a branding, 
a scar. A child who is strong enough to resist a branding deserves to be listened to. I have to be grateful that the hardships I did experience would not impede my ability to become literate finally, and I would have to be most grateful that a process rooted in art would help me to discover and explain all that stood in the way. Without literacy, without art, without having some process with which to look over the passage of time, I think my grief would have consumed me, and I would never have come to know the full vindication that I've been able to receive by writing. To come this far, I would still have to take a long journey. I would be led even further away from reading. I would have to avoid letters and literacy completely because of what, for a time, I feared they might reveal. I never knew that a boy could be treated the way I had been, and it was something I did not want to learn. Um, and so all this is set up for an understanding of how my autodidactic learning process took place. Um, it was avoidance, 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 but yet I kept walking toward the theater. And at a certain point, I got away from my family and was surrounded by theater kids. <laughs> and I was like, okay, now I can start over. I can start over as anyone. It doesn't matter how I begin, right? And so in that context, we had to work with plays. We started with Shakespeare and some poetry, and I eventually, bit by bit, move into being able to handle poems, starting with Shel Silverstein and then Lewis Carroll and then a sonnet by Shakespeare. Um, bit by bit, I am then in the position of having a script and I'm, I'm working with the actor here next to me and I say, okay, your line, and I say my line, and then it's your line, and it's my line, and then it's your line, and then it's your line, and it's your line, and it's your line, and it's her line, and it's my line. And in going through this slowly in, in a play, by reading plays, I had the ability to wait. Okay, I have three lines to, to plan this one out. And so then I had the ability to really look at the work and be more careful and then come up with a, um, you know, the subtext for that line because I understood the situation. Every, every moment in which you took the line... You helped explain to me the subtext that I was going for. And so I fit into a, a real live scenario quite easily because then I could make things up as I went along. And I could imagine, okay, well, that's how this kid's making it up. My character, he too, is making it up as he goes along. And so I'd try out every line differently. And it was the tool of the play that had enormous sway over my ability to read and write. It wasn't a... Um, it, well, we can look at language on all kinds of levels. You know, there's the phonetic and there's the graphic and there's um, all these ways to break down the components of language. But when I finally had language in play, suddenly I could jump in at certain points and jump out again. And it was this aptitude that helped me a great deal in understanding how to approach reading and writing. Um, I hope to lighten things up and go back to my theme. <laughs> um, here is um, one of my favorite chapters or prefaces for the book. Um, the book has a lot of prefaces, a lot of openings. I hope a good book has lots of openings. Um, Chapter 15, The Harlequinade. 
a procession of clowns. The fool has a long history. I am certainly not the first. With the fall of the Roman Empire, so fell the fool, or the clown, who was, until then, well adored. The church continued on long past the fall of Rome, its ceremonies preserving some of the theatrical conventions of the older theater. Through religion, the theater survived. Though more somber and more serious, the church began to perform the story of the Passion of Christ using theatrical methods that had been developed previously and handed on. Over centuries, these methods became more complex, more lifelike. Horses drew carriages, like floats in a parade. The stages of the Passion were reenacted on these platforms, these rolling platforms. Uh, These stages rolled the countryside in the Middle Ages, bringing the story, the passion, to communities that had no access to books and little ability to read them. The passion plays took the shape of a traveling procession. Like a carefully formed sentence, all of the stages in sequence were drawn out for people to see. In the early Italian Renaissance, the theater re-emerged by way of companies of traveling actors. Again, clowns fell out of carriages, and the fool returned to the cities of Italy. Ushering in the passion play came these Renaissance clowns. To be a clown, or to be made a fool, was no different than to be made a fool of. It meant being someone without legitimacy, someone whose word did not carry weight or convey reliable information. If clowns were paid, it was partly out of pity for their nomadic lives and minimal possessions. The conventions of the theater were very basic. There were no electric lights or microphones. Actors had to earn their audience's attention, calling out their lines and moving in stylized ways to claim the space of the action. They did not rehearse plays as such or use scripts Over 300 years they produced theater, and yet only a handful of scenarios or arguments remain. These were used as outlines for their performances, which would begin to take place in piazzas all around the Mediterranean. Every performer was in some way a clown. Masks were worn to individuate their characters and to create an attractive sense of the bizarre. If the action fell apart, each performer had a collection of gags and jokes to draw upon at any time. I was a good juggler. Um, To earn the attention of onlookers. Um, Most of the actors were illiterate. They uh, and they performed to an illiterate crowd. If anyone in the audience was, re- was reading a book, a clown would be likely to pull it out of that person's hand and to try to read it upside down, as though saying, who's the fool now? The Commedia dell'arte popularized theater clowns, which with names, um, with names, relationships, even genealogies. These clowns had histories. Punch and Judy come from this tradition. The clowns Romeo and Julietta come from this tradition. But the most beloved clown in the Renaissance was the child servant Harlequino, a slave taken from his family in Ethiopia. His innocence was what made Harlequino so endearing. But he was more than endearing. Like that of an early Charlie Chaplin, his innocence could be ironic or subversive. He could even be a critic. He was uneducated, untaught, but he was not without his wits or wiles.
His naive humor was understood by all who were acquainted, and it got him into all sorts of trouble. His illiteracy, his lack of education, became the premise of more than one scenario. Arlecchino would be sent with letters because he could not read them. Arlecchino was always sincere. Uh, Who was always sincere? He was charged with stealing a loaf of bread, even when he'd been given it. He was often made the scapegoat, and he never doubted his friends. Why would he? His happiness came from the belief that everything he was told was true. Harlequino suffered. He knew the whip, but he seemed to have no ability to sense the injury or servitude of his estrangement from family. He had moments of sadness and moments of glee, he had been assigned by ro- had he been assigned by royalty he would have been a page like a page he left his home without grief or remorse and accepted his servitude under pantalone his he was a fool in as much as he now believed himself wealthy he had horses to feed and stables to clean he had friends who loved him and reciprocated his affection for humanity one day Perot and, and Colombino uh, are going to the ball when they find Harlequino cleaning. Children as they are, they wonder why it is that Harlequino was not invited. He doesn't know. The, the friends find his absence unacceptable, and the scenario then develops around the problem that the servant boy has nothing to wear. The friends gather, and their solution is extraordinary. Each of the children going to the ball commits a swatch of his or her gown so that from them an outfit for a Harlequino can be fashioned. At the ball, all the children arrive with diamond shapes cut out of their garments. At the center of the ball is Harlequino, dancing, wearing only the patches he'd been given. This is the origin of the diamond-patterned costume that universally distinguishes this Prince of Fools. So I hope in this book to... I I, I want a new millennium for fools and for clowns. I want Harlequino to have the next chapter of our political history. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.